0: Hi, everyone. You're listening to the Complex Trauma Recovery Podcast. This is Keena Wolfenstein. And this series of episodes, we are breaking down and deeply exploring bottom-up and experiential therapy modalities. I'm interviewing a series of guests about their specialties. And the goal is for people to feel informed about experiential therapy, what it is, and why it is so effective for complex trauma. Just a few announcements before we jump into today's interview. So, first announcement: my practice is still hiring. We're looking to hire other therapists that are passionate about experiential bottom-up approaches to therapy. Um, if you're interested in applying, there's a link in my link tree to fill out a Google form, or you can also reach out to us at hello at strongroot psychotherapy.com. Second announcement is that I do have a workshop coming up on May 7th. It's called Intro to Experiential Therapy. And workshop was designed for therapists so if you're a therapist and you're wanting more kind of practical tools and guidance for how to work from an experiential framework with your clients i hope that you will check it out Um, and if you can't make it live i'll also have a recording of it available afterwards um and then I also have another workshop that I already did on March 6th called Healing Modalities for the Painfully Self Aware. That one was more so for the client side of things, so not designed for therapists, but designed to kind of break down bottom up healing and how it works. Uh, and I have a recording of that workshop available for anybody that's interested. The information for the workshops, the link for joining my mailing list, um, and the Strong Roots Psychotherapy application are all in my link tree. Which you can click below. All right. Thank you guys. Enjoy the episode. Hi everyone. You're listening to the complex trauma recovery podcast, and I'm super excited for my guest today. I'm going to read her bio. Robin Walvick is an associate marriage and family therapist based in Los Angeles, California. She completed a master's program at Pepperdine University and received clinical training in psychodynamic therapy. Robin specializes in complex trauma, depression and anxiety and obsessive compulsive disorder. Throughout her education, training, and extra certification programs, Robin has learned to incorporate tools from psychodynamic therapy, DBT, attachment-focused therapy, internal family systems, exposure and response prevention therapy, culturally sensitive therapy, EFT, and gestalt techniques to tailor treatment to each individual client and best meet their needs. Thank you so much for being here, Robin. Hi, thanks for having me. So that is a list of all
1: kinds of cool modalities that you use. Very eclectic. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Um, I, I finished my master's degree at Pepperdine and felt like it was just like the ABCs of therapy. You know what I mean? And, mm-hmm. and was so excited to learn all these different modalities. Yeah.
0: Yes. Yeah. I think the master's programs are usually kind of like the ABCs and you have yeah. to kind of build, build off of it yourself. So,
1: totally. um,
0: I want to, I'm sure we'll touch on multiple modalities, but I wanna start with kind of breaking down two modalities that we haven't talked about much on my podcast before. Um, And those are IFS and the ERP, the exposure and response prevention therapy. So could you start with just kind of telling us a little bit
1: about uh, both of those modalities? Yeah, totally. So IFS, um, internal family systems, and I'm not an expert by any means. Um, I just love learning. I would say definitely that's my passion. So um, IFS, as I understand it, is a lot about working with different parts of self. Um, mm-hmm. So in terms of like inner child healing, um, I having a secure attachment with different parts of yourself, how the different parts of yourself manifest in terms of even trauma responses, um, fight part, freeze part, fawn part, all those things, and how they manifest in your life and how that was probably adaptive for you at one mm-hmm. point, And you had to do that to survive. And probably the reason you're in therapy is because it's not working out great presently. Um, and so working with those different parts of self is how I understand it. And then building secure attachments with all those parts.
0: Hmm.
1: Yes. I love
0: parts work too. I'm the same. We're like, I'm not an expert. I haven't taken the formal training even. Cause I think it's like really expensive, Yeah. Um, but I've just read as much as I can about parts work and I, I yeah. love utilizing it. And then yeah. what about ERP? Tell us about that.
1: Yeah. ERP is exposure and response prevention therapy and we use it for OCD. Um, and so that is kind of like, um, eh, it's a little bit like CBT. And I hate to say that because it's like a prescribed set of steps Mm. to do to in therapy. But I add a trauma informed lens and an experiential and somatic lens and exposure therapy is somatic in nature. So it's not at all like CBT, but it is in terms of the prescribed steps. So, and that is um, to kind of help us with OCD. um, OCD is obsessive compulsive disorder. It shows up. There are so many subtypes of OCD um, and it shows up in so many different ways. It can show up as somatic OCD. It can show up as contamination OCD, um, moral scrupulosity OCD, Mm -hmm. um, sexuality um, based OCD. There are so many different subtypes of OCD and we use exposure response prevention to treat that.
0: Yeah, that's so interesting to hear that um, that ERP is somatic. So I'm excited to, to hear more about that. Um, yeah. In terms of like what you see working with complex trauma, but
1: also OCD, what do you see as like the, the ways that those overlap with each other? There's so much overlap. So um, even to this day, scientists and research can't pinpoint any one single cause of OCD. And OCD is one of those very rare mental health disorders that typically is lifelong. And you we don't focus on curing it, we focusing on managing it and getting so good at managing it that we barely even notice that we're doing it anymore. Mm. Um, but yeah, OCD can have a biological component, a lot of, not a lot, um, some people with OCD are born with it and you can even see repetitive behaviors starting at like two years old um Um, yeah so there is a biological component there could also be a biological predisposition which we see with other mental health disorders where if you have it in your family you're predisposed but does it actually ever develop into the enough to be like diagnostic criteria where you're actually diagnosed mm -hmm. I don't know um there's a social component of OCD in terms of are you around people that are um either exhibiting OCD behaviors or make you feel like you need to do repetitive checking things to Mm. feel safe and that kind of relates to trauma and then um the kind of cause I see most often is OCD as a trauma response which is Mm. maybe you had a predisposition but something happened in your life or a series of events happened in your life that rocked you to your core so hard that your brain needed to engage in this compulsive behavior to make sure that you're safe. And it feels very much out of your control.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, have definitely seen that too. And I'm not like a OCD specialist. That's not Mm. an area of focus for me, but being a trauma therapist, I definitely have seen a lot of those clients that have had, um, kind of OCD develop in response to complex trauma, um, or maybe not like the full clinical diagnostic criteria for OCD, but like a lot of kind of OCD traits are showing up. Um, so why, why would someone develop OCD as a trauma response? Like what is the brain trying to do when, when it does that?
1: Yeah, that's such a great question. So the brain is designed to help us survive um, and to keep us alive. That is all the brain is designed to do. It is not designed to keep us happy, healthy. <laughs> um, the brain is designed to keep us alive. So I will use like, um, I have OCD. Um, so I will use um my kind of OCD, which is contamination OCD as an example. Okay. So yeah, yeah for for an example, if you grew up in a dirty home, if um, you didn't feel like clean, if your body didn't feel safe, if you felt like there's always this external threat to your body, because maybe you grew up in a hoarder house, maybe you grew up in really unsafe conditions in some way, mm-hmm. right? You felt like your physical body was always threatened. Your brain is going to say, I need to constantly make sure my body is okay. Otherwise mm-hmm. I will die. That's mm-hmm. what the unconscious brain is kind of saying, you might not be consciously aware that that is the narrative, but that's what your brain is going into. Pardon me, going into. Yeah. So using contamination OCD as an example, um, the brain might be obsessive with making sure that our body doesn't become contaminated or hurt or damaged in some way because that deeply threatens our ability to survive. So we might develop an obsession with making sure we're not contaminated Mm -hmm. in some way, damaged in some way. And it might turn into compulsions like um, cleaning a lot. It might turn into compulsions like staying even away from people. Um, Mm. It might turn into avoidance of like yeah getting close um sharing products with people going to the doctor compulsively Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um like way too often to check like oh my gosh like one time i had a bug bite and i had a complete mental breakdown about it Mm. um and i went to the doctor hysterical that is very common in um contamination ocd yeah health anxiety it's also called
0: Yes. Yeah. It seems like there's definitely a control element of it, right? Like it strikes me as, you know, when you've been through complex trauma, one of the biggest parts of that is just feeling very out of control of what's happening to you and kind of helpless and powerless. And then I feel like our brain wants to feel like we're in control of security and safety and I mean, in some ways I see that being similar to like eating disorders and and some other conditions where it's like my brain is kind of going to cling on to something that I can manage that makes me feel, you know, like I'm in control. Um, I remember reading a while ago, an article about OCD that called it security motivations that like people with OCD basically have really high motivation to like feel secure, but then the things that they do to feel secure, like it's not long lasting. And so that's why the repetition comes in where it's like, oh, I want to feel secure. And you maybe feel secure for like a, a minute or whatever. And then it's like, oh, it faded. Now I need to feel secure again.
1: Does that ring true for you? That's exact. That's a beautiful, perfect way to describe OCD and why treating it with ERP is so important. Um, so yeah, so OCD, um, I kind of describe it as a fundamental distrust of the self and your world around you. Um, Nothing feels safe and you're desperately Mm. trying to feel safe and in control, desperately. Mm. Um, And it's also called like needing to know for sure, like with 100% certainty. Mm -hmm. And then you kind of get into these um, reassurance-seeking behaviors, which can be very dangerous because like you said, reassurance, when we get it by engaging with OCD only lasts so long. And then you're thrown back to like hyper arousal. We're out of our window of tolerance and we're so activated that we need to get that reassurance again. And our whole life is revolving around getting Mm -hmm. that reassurance, getting that, I call it like a click in your brain to
0: -hmm. where you can like settle
1: finally, Mm -hmm. but then it comes back because we're engaging with the OCD. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, and most of those things we can't get 100% certainty on. Right. Like I've definitely come across that as well, where it's like, well, what if it's like the, what if questions. Um, and a lot of those things, it's like, you can't know for sure. I mean, a lot of the things are improbable, like probably, you know, a lot of those different fears are not going to happen, but is it totally impossible? Like, you know, probably not like all kinds of crazy things do happen. And so it's kind of a trap because like the brain is never going to get that, that certainty that it really is craving.
1: That's exactly it. And one part of um, that was such an astute observation. One huge part of ERP is differentiating between the OCD voice and your true voice. Mm. Because OCD statements, I always tell clients, start with, What if did I? Mm. And so if I use contamination OCD as an example or health anxiety, what if um, I have diabetes? You go, you compulsively go to the doctor, you get a blood test and then it comes back normal. But you're Mm. saying, what if they mixed up my lab results? What if they Mm. dropped the the dish? And and you never really get that click, that 100% certainty, because your OCD is trying to keep you in the OCD loop, which is going to come in with all these angles of, well, what if the doctor messed up? What if they gave me someone else's results? I need to go again. I need to compulsively get tested again just to make sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Oh my gosh. That is so interesting. Well, you're making me reflect on my own life here now too, because (laughs) so I was actually diagnosed with OCD when I was, um, younger, when I was like, I think 18 or something when I first started college. And I think it, it was a trauma response for me. Um, and I think that the trauma treatment that I've been through has really like reduced, you know, my experience of those symptoms. So I don't think about it very much anymore, but I had the health stuff. And for me, I had these like intrusive fears about having cancer cancer or having like serious health problems. And there was one time that I went to Planned Parenthood, like convinced that I had breast cancer and it was literally a pimple. It was literally
1: a pimple in my (laughs) armpit.
0: (laughs) And then the the doctor was like, that's a pimple. And I like burst into tears. I was like, oh my God, are you sure? And my ex-girlfriend that I was with at the time, the doctor turned to her and was like, is she okay? And my ex-girlfriend was like, I don't know, she's going through something. But like, yeah, it totally was that feeling where it it was, it's the what if, like, and I remember even knowing, like, it's like kind of the rational part of my brain being like, okay, it's probably not breast cancer. It could definitely just be a pimple. But then it's like, but what if it's not? Like, what if it is cancer?
1: That's your OCD voice and that's you in hyperarousal where your thinking brain is trying to come back online, but you're so in hyperarousal and in that OCD loop that you just cannot I cannot even tell you the amount of times I've been to the ER hysterical because I was Mm. like staring at my phone for too long and I was convinced I had pink eye. And for some reason, pink eye was the end of the world for me. Mm -hmm. But it was my eyes were literally just stinging from being online too much. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
0: It's so crazy. And then with the what ifs, I've also I've come across that with the moral OCD Mm -hmm. with clients where it's the like, what if I'm, you know, a bad person? What if I'm I mean, and people's brains, tell me if this is right, but my understanding is that the OCD fears will basically be whatever like opposes your values the most and whatever you would find like the most reprehensible. And so these people that are like, they really care about like anti-racism will be like, what if I'm racist? Or these people that really care about, you know, consent and, um, and like sexual health will be like, what if I am a sexual predator? Or, you know, it'll be kind of like the worst thing I can think of is like what your brain is producing.
1: Absolutely. OCD often lack, and this is why it overlaps with trauma so much. And it is so lacking from ERP, which is unfortunate, but it's so good to talk about because OCD is traumatic. Having those thoughts, OCD often latches onto the scariest things for us, Mm -hmm. the things that are the most destabilizing. And in ERP, we kind of conceptualize Mm -hmm. it as the OCD monster living in our brain. And I kind of tell my clients, OCD has its claws in you right now. That little monster has its claws in you. And it's trying mm. to keep its claws in your brain. Um, mm. But yeah, it latches onto the scariest things for us. And those are the intrusive thoughts. And how traumatizing is it? One very common one yes, is cancer, being a psychopath, being a child predator. Um, there, there are so many, um, but yeah, it often, am I going to drive my car off this cliff right yeah, now? Yeah, yeah. Am I going to hit these people? I used to have one where I was driving and I was like, oh my gosh, did I just hit a bicyclist? Yeah, the um, false memory
0: OCD where you're like, what yeah. if I did hit someone with my car and I'm just like
1: in denial oh, yeah. about it or forgetting it? Or, and then you yeah. have to drive in a loop and make sure there's no body lying there yes. and just driving to the grocery store can be life or death. Um, mm-hmm. For you and the people around you. And that is so traumatic and so de- so destabilizing. And if yeah. you think about what's happening in your body too, while you're feeling that and thinking that it's,
0: it's awful. Yeah, yeah. it's very de- destabilizing. And then you're like yeah. constantly trying to get that stability. And yes. yeah, so okay. That was so helpful. Tell everyone about like what ERP, like standard ERP is. And then I want to hear about what are those changes that you make to kind of make it more trauma informed?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so just some background too. Um, I actually was diagnosed with PTSD for like 25 years plus OCD. Um, and I couldn't find treatment for myself, um, from any therapist. Um, and so, and I went to like CITES, I went to psychologists, I yeah. went to people with advanced degrees above mine trying to find help. And wow. so this is um, what is it? Like necessity is whatever for invention. Um fuel uh, necessity is fuel for invention. Is that sure. I don't know that's the line. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like that makes sense. <laughs> it doesn't make sense. Yeah. <laughs> so that's kind of why I came up with this. Um, mm. and this is what I do with my clients. So traditional ERP um is like Um, I've heard some people mention rapport building some not but um, traditional ERP is rapport building coping skills um, fear hierarchy Um, a fear hierarchy is kind of like we draw like either a ladder or a pyramid and we kind of rank the OCD fears um, or just fears in general if you're working with um, panic disorder or just anxiety Mm -hmm. we rank them from what is the worst that's the bottom of the pyramid to what is like like the least destabilizing kind of thing. So the worst is I have cancer. I'm sick. A middle one might be I have pink eye. Oh my gosh. And mm-hmm. a top one might be, is this a cold developing? Is this a pimple mm-hmm, kind of mm-hmm. thing? Um, and I'm just using like a very bland example right now. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. But um, so that's a fear hierarchy. And then we work with the smallest fear and do exposures and then work our way down to the bigger ones once Mm -hmm. we kind of develop a safe foundation working with the smaller, less destabilizing ones. Mm -hmm. um so that's so we don't flood and overwhelm the client because we don't want to jump into working with the biggest fears because then they shut down and stop therapy and then
0: yeah 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 which it's kind of the same with trauma processing too so that makes sense like you normally are not going to start with like the biggest most intense trauma
1: yeah yeah so that's super important to do um Mm -hmm. and so then um we kind of talk about like OCD voice versus our own voice. A lot of people call it like what working with children, the OCD monster, sometimes we'll give it a name. Um, that's Fred in there making a mess, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, um, and just labeling it, what is OCD talking and when is it really me talking? Um, and then, you, yeah, you start with small exposures like on the fear hierarchy and then um, Sometimes a reward system and then like, oh, like, wow, I went to this crowded building and I didn't get sick or I didn't do something embarrassing in front of people. I'm going to take myself out for ice cream for doing that. And then you get really comfortable doing that. Then you move on to a bigger one and you keep rewarding yourself and acknowledging how scary that was and how you can do hard things. And that's great. Mm -hmm. Um, And then you move on to bigger exposures. The problem I have seen with ERP is, and when we're talking about trauma-informed therapy, is that a lot of, um, sometimes, (laughs) um, if there is not a lot of like tact, ERP can be very traumatizing because a key Mm. function of ERP is not giving any reassurance because OCD is largely about seeking reassurance. right? If we look at it from an attachment lens, if you have a client who's maybe only secure attachment is with the therapist, and all of a sudden the therapist is going complete blank slate, mm. no reassurance, and being almost cruel, like, yeah, that's not great in terms right, of trauma right. and attachment. Yeah. So, yeah, and a lot of the time, I'm not sure why psychoeducation isn't as emphasized as I feel it should be, because we don't want therapy to feel like something that is happening to the client. Mm -hmm. Because if we think about trauma, a lot of the, a lot of the trauma is things that have happened too.
0: Right. Not feeling empowered, not feeling like you have agency.
1: Right. And yeah, that helpless feeling, that feeling out of control. So we really want to do therapy with the client alongside and tell them what we're doing along the way. So they are very much in control. They can stop at any time. They can say, this is too much for today. I actually want to shift to this subject. Mm. If they're feeling not in the right space, Mm -hmm. we never want therapy to be something that we're doing to the client. Yeah. So that's kind of one piece about how I like add a trauma lens and focus kind of thing is that I do a ton of psychoeducation and I always do psychoeducation and add consent before I do any kind of even just drawing out the fear hierarchy with a client. Um, and yeah, obviously, rapport building first and foremost mm-hmm. is super important because I mean, if a client already feels uncomfortable and unsafe, they're not going to open up and they're not going to go there. And. Yeah. And ERP is so scary to do with OCD yeah. that it can be very re-traumatizing and people drop out very easily.
0: No, that makes sense for sure. Um, So having like the, the safety and the rapport between the client and the therapist, having the client be more informed on kind of the process. So they feel like they're, uh, participating in it and not just like receiving it. And then how does the reassurance seeking, oh, that's my cat meowing. I don't know if you can hear that. (laughs) Hi. Um, how does the reassurance seeking look? So if you don't, you don't want to feed into the OCD by like getting into that loop, but you also don't want to be like cold and, and, you know, detached. So what's that balance look like for you?
1: Yeah. So traditional ERP, how I've experienced it. And maybe there are some ERP therapists that are just really amazing and this doesn't apply, but yeah, when I was trying to get help, this is kind of what I experienced is, um, going to my therapist in near hysterics, like begging for help. Like, do you think I'm going to die from this scenario? Mm -hmm. Like, what if this person i love so much is hurt and i can't help them i'm so terrified that they're hurt they're in a car accident what if i can't find them what if i don't get to them in time and the therapist completely shut down like completely like blank face Mm. i don't know Mm. and that's that's their form of not giving reassurance but I was absolutely hysterical oh my gosh yeah that sounds terrible (laughs) (laughs) and so kind of how really good erp therapists do it and adding that trauma-informed lens is psychoeducation like look this sounds like you're really activated right now and these things are so scary they absolutely are part of what your ocd is doing right now is desperately looking for reassurance That reassurance is going to be okay for the next five minutes, maybe, until Mm -hmm. you get reactivated. So what we're going to do is we're going to practice not getting that reassurance, self reassurance, Mm -hmm. and then not engaging with the OCD. So let's practice that right now. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what I would do.
0: Or what I do. Yeah. It's just being more responsive and warm and like being in it with them and like let's practice getting through this instead of being like you're you're in it on your own, you know, good
1: luck over there. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Because again, the OCD themes are typically what is the most scary for a person Mm -hmm. in the world.
0: Yeah. No, that makes sense. And then it just sounds like being more empathetic too. Like you can give that empathy of like, yeah, that sounds really scary to feel that way, you know, without yeah. being like, no, no, that's not true and giving the reassurance, but you can still be like attuned and responsive and empathetic.
1: Yeah. And a piece that I really like, um, that Pat Ogden who um did like a lot of the somatic therapy webinars that i did is kind of bringing the prefrontal cortex back online because a lot of the time ocd spirals are a lot like um ptsd like flashbacks like amygdala hijackings Mm -hmm. basically so your thinking brain is not online during those times your amygdala is like blaring Mm -hmm. so sometimes what we do in terms of like somatic therapy is just describe what your body is doing to try to bring that prefrontal cortex back online because right now it's shut off when we're in an ocd spiral or even in a trauma response in a panic attack and whatever it is are you really sweaty right now? Like, are you feeling tightness in your chest or your throat? Mm. Um, Describe to me what's happening in your body. And that allows the prefrontal cortex to come back online. And it's easier to get out of that amygdala hijacking situation that we're in. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So that's what it looks like to bring the somatic piece in is to just kind of bring the client's awareness to what's happening somatically when they're in an activated state.
1: Yeah, yeah. And then um, even with trauma, um, Pat Ogden talks about, like, completing the movement a lot, which I really like. So sometimes, like, um, like I'm like, do you need to punch a pillow right now? Let's do it together. Mm-hmm. Do you need to, like, like what is, in terms of, like, trauma or, like, whatever it is? Sometimes even OCD. It can be like, what movement does your body want to do right now that you're restricting? Do you want to push that person away? Do you want to bring that person to you? Do you want to shake it off? Do you want to get up and get out? Let's do that in therapy right now. Get up Mm -hmm. and get out. I'll walk with you.
0: Hmm. Yes. I love the completing the movement as well, because with the somatic experiencing techniques, like we typically will feel that survival energy and then kind of bottle it up or try to suppress it. And so facilitating that energy to actually be like released and, and discharged can be really, really helpful. So
1: yeah, I love
0: that. What else are there? Are there any other changes in kind of like a more trauma informed approach to
1: treating OCD? yeah totally um i th- erp does this and i just kind of expand on it with um trauma coping skills and erp already does this erp is great um but i i do add more skills from like trauma therapy and stuff which is before we even get into the fear hierarchy before we get into the exposures and then not seeking reassurance we need to make sure the client has skills to deal with extremely emotional situations mm. um so sometimes that can look like just even identifying what emotions and feelings and thoughts are. Because sometimes in in terms of like dissociation is very common with OCD and trauma. Sometimes we're so dissociated from ourselves that we don't even recognize what emotions we're having. Um, so sometimes just recognizing and being able to label emotions, am I scared right now? Um, what am I feeling? What am I thinking? That's a good skill to have. Mm-hmm. Um, resourcing who's a safe person for you are you safe for yourself um I really like inner child I really like yeah um parts work even for this and I really like using the therapeutic relationship in terms of attachment because sometimes that's the only secure attachment people have mm-hmm. um and then I like visualization um I really like this tool I forget what it's called but like um we practice it before we get into like exploring a trauma and it's like okay i want you to close your eyes and i want you to imagine all these bad thoughts funneling out of your head and pick a container they go into containment yeah yeah (laughs) i love that resource yep and so we practice Mm -hmm. doing that before we even get into like the scary thoughts so that it's kind of second nature so when we do get into the scary thoughts we can do this mindfulness exercise afterwards and Mm -hmm. it's very easy to recall. And they're like, okay, I'm putting these slots into my mason jar and I'm throwing it off the, the ship into the ocean. Yeah. And it's already comfortable for them to do. Yeah. Um, And I like some DBT skills, just like taking a cold shower, go for a sprint. Um, yeah, whatever it is. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Just all that resourcing is so important. Yeah. Yeah. Do you ever use IFS with OCD? Like how, how do those two click?
1: I think there's so much overlap yeah with IFS and um treating OCD because OCD is so scary and sometimes even like for OCD I'll use contamination again just cuz I have it and it's easy to recall. Mm-hmm. Um yeah there's we can separate like the OCD into a part and we can talk mm-hmm. to that part. There's a part of you that really is scared that your body is going to be physically hurt or damaged in some way. Yeah what does that part look like? Where does it come from? When was the first time you felt that?
0: Yes. Yep. Yeah. I'm, um, I'm super relating to this. So I, I did as i mentioned my own trauma therapy and i did a lot of therapy on health anxiety because health anxiety has been something that has always been really challenging for me and the interesting thing that i kind of discovered is that the root of it is not it's not like a really direct obvious link so it's not like um like the example you gave of kind of growing up in a dirty house and then having contamination fears that feels like a really direct link right where it's like oh yeah that mm-hmm. makes sense When I started digging through my own health anxiety, it actually came from something that had like nothing to do with health or with my body, but my brain had just kind of like interpreted things in that way. And so, without getting into like too much detail about my own trauma history, you know, I basically had these experiences of a lot of loss, like loss of control and loss of safety growing up. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was really intense and really overwhelming for me. And then that kind of all got attached to this fear of like losing my health or like losing my physical safety. Um, and so it just manifests in that way of me constantly being like, oh my God, do I have cancer? Oh my God. What if I have a heart attack? Like all these different intrusive health fears. But then when I was processing it in my own therapy, it was like, oh, this actually ties back to me just feeling like overwhelmed and like out of control. And like, I lost all my security at a certain point in my younger life. And, and the health is almost like this easy thing for my brain to cling on to, to like project all
1: of that. Right. Yes. And that's there's so much overlap with OCD and disorders surrounding the body as well, because it's a concrete thing for your brain to latch onto.
0: Yeah, like um, like body focused, repetitive behaviors, perhaps.
1: Yes, there's um, a lot of comor- comorbidity with addiction, eating disorders, mm-hmm. um, things like that, because we take something so abstract and scary and destabilizing that we can't it's not concrete, like, yeah it's not making a ton of sense. And so we put all that energy into something more concrete. I can focus on my body. I can focus on if it's okay or not. I can focus on these external, very concrete things. Mm -hmm. And the compulsions are often like, I can pick something
0: really concrete to help me feel secure because really this lack of safety that I feel is like, so overwhelming and not concrete. And, you know, the story that I told about, the pimple in my armpit that I was convinced was breast cancer. So this was like, You know, over a decade ago for me. But at that time, I also had a lot of issues with food and I used food as a way to like make myself feel better about those fears. So when I was waiting for my doctor's appointment and waiting to have them look at this thing in my armpit, I had basically like, I think you would call it magical thinking of like, okay, if I only eat these kinds of food until my doctor's appointment, it's not going to be breast cancer. (laughs) But if I eat these other kinds of food, it is going to be cancer. (laughs) And obviously in my rational brain, I was like that literally makes no sense. Like that makes no, absolutely no sense. But like my brain was so desperate for something to feel yeah. like I had some control because I felt so scared. And I think that's, that fear is like what needs to be really attuned to and and healed.
1: Yes. You're, that was such a great example in so many different ways. One, because it, it wasn't like a con like, it wasn't a logical connection between your right. OCD and the trauma that caused it, which is very common when we get clients for OCD. I didn't have trauma. I don't know where this is coming from. This is coming from nowhere. I'm defective. There's something wrong with me.
0: Mm-hmm. When
1: we start exploring, we're like, oh, well this is the connection and it yeah. actually makes so much sense and there's nothing wrong with you. Yeah. Um, and that is so common, but a lot of people feel so much shame and stigma that something is so wrong with them and that it's coming out of nowhere. Um so I really appreciate that example and the food thing is totally OCD by the way. Yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was totally like an OCD like yeah it's a little bit magical thinking but also um obsession and compulsion. We right. get that a lot where they don't make a lot of logical sense but it's something you desperately need to do to feel grounded and safe and okay like you yeah. can get through the next 5 minutes. Yeah yeah totally.
0: Yeah I mean it's I guess it's kind of the same as the like um, you know, I need to, well, I I guess it depends. I was thinking of like hand washing or like compulsive things like that. And sometimes that is more of like an obvious link where it's like, oh, I need to wash my hands. Otherwise, you know, my hands are contaminated, but I have definitely seen other obsessive and compulsive links that don't really make rational sense that are more in like the kind of magical thinking line where it's like, I need to, you know, Uh, You know, you hear people talk about like, I need to take a certain amount of steps. Otherwise, like someone that I love will die or, you know, things like
1: that. Exactly. If I don't wear all my rings and my watch and my lucky purse, then my dad will die. Mm -hmm. Or if I don't flip this light switch on seven times, something bad will happen to my family member. They'll get sick and it'll be my fault. And imagine thinking that. Imagine thinking that if you mess up some way, someone you love will die or get horribly sick.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So scary. And I guess through the IFS lens, you know, I can see the parts in, in this dynamic because to me, that fear, like that intense fear of loss, of death, of pain, of whatever, that is like the more vulnerable part that's holding the trauma, right? Like that's often, you know, we could call it like the inner child or like the younger, more, more hurt and scared parts. And then I see like the compulsions, um, or kind of the like OCD behaviors as being like those doer manager parts, right. Where it's, it's like, it's serving a protective function. It's like, I'm going to do all of this and control all of this and like manage, you know, really like obsessively manage all these different risks, um, to try to comfort this like scared,
1: injured, younger part of myself. That's such a perfect connection. And I think you're absolutely right. Um, And the brain gets stuck in this trauma response, which manifests as OCD, which is, I'm threatened. I'm threatened. I need to be constantly thinking about this because I'm threatened, or the people around me are threatened in some really fundamental way. And so, of course, your brain obsesses over it. And then, of course, you engage in compulsions, trying to keep yourself safe.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, makes so much sense. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah. And then, with kind of the, the OCD and, and trauma process. Well, actually let me back up. So I've been asking all of my guests, what is experiential therapy and why is experiential therapy important for working with trauma? So, um, yeah, let me hear your, your take on that.
1: Yeah. That's a really big question. It's kind of an open,
0: open open-ended question. Yeah. Yeah.
1: (laughs) So, um, what I hear a lot is people not wanting to go to therapy, um, or quitting therapy because they get stuck in the cognition. So the, um, like top down kind of approaches like the CBT, I know my trauma, I can describe my trauma, like whatever, like I'm not being healed. Like this isn't Mm -hmm. doing anything. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah. Um, and so experiential therapy is not describing what's happening. It's, being in the emotion, being in your body, being very present and not kind of this bird's eye view, top down approach that'll, that we've been taught. Mm. Um, so bottom up is let's go back into your body. Let's connect with these parts.
0: Mm.
1: What's going on for you? And we don't necessarily need to know the details, but something or some things over a long period of time really fundamentally changed your connection with your body and the world around you your connection with yourself and different parts of yourself um and so it's more experiential it's more being in the moment um i use a lot of mindfulness visualization and parts work for this but yeah we're not getting stuck in this pointless changing the cognition because then I mean, what it's just kind of a bird's eye view over your life instead Mm -hmm. of being in your life.
0: Yes. Yeah, totally. And I think of the cognitions as being like, like, you know, the, the graphic of like the iceberg and you can see the tip of the iceberg peeking out from the water. And then there's like the bulk of the iceberg is underneath the water. What you can't see. I feel like the cognitions are like the very tip of the iceberg, (laughs) you know, and there's like so much more underneath the surface.
1: Totally, totally. And there's nothing wrong with, um, bottom top down approaches Mm -hmm. I feel like that's again like just like our master's degree that was like the ABCs that we need to know yeah right um it it is fundamental it has a place but it is not supposed to be (gasps) like even the the middle or end of therapies type stuff that's like first second week in therapy type stuff
0: yeah yeah a hundred percent yeah Thank you so much. This is, this is really helpful. So you listed these other modalities as well. Um, I think it was like attachment focus, gestalt, like different. So what does it look like for you kind of blending these different modalities together? Like, do you use all of these things with every client or does it
1: just kind of depend on each client's needs? Yeah. Yeah. It depends on each individual client and what they need at the time. Um, and so so yeah so my critique on other kind of therapies and i don't want what i say to be construed as negative for most of what i say it's just um what i found works and what doesn't is that sometimes there's like a prescribed list of steps you go through Mm -hmm. but sometimes the client is coming in with something completely unrelated and how invalidating it would it be to be like just go through the steps of this process Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um so yeah so i kind of tailor treatment to what the client needs who they are, what the symptoms are, what their history is, um, how they're experiencing that history in the moment and also like what's going on in their life currently. So I blend all these modalities day to day. Mm -hmm. Um, So I really like Gestalt for like empty chair or like um, visualization type of stuff. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I do that a lot where I like, I do therapy on my couch so I hold up a pillow and instead of describing the event, talk to this person right now. And I'll hold up a yep. pillow or I move over and I'm like, this person is sitting right here. Talk to them right now in a yeah. moment. Yeah. Um, so I love Gestalt for that. And yeah, I blend. Um, I love DBT coping um, skills. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't necessarily do the entire step-by-step whatever, but I just take parts of all these different modalities and blend it to what the client is presenting. And sometimes they'll come in for one thing and then a life shift happens. And we're not going to stay on like the treatment plan for that one thing over here, we're going to adjust for, oh, what just happened to you. Mm-hmm. Let's look at that. Let's get you just to survive right now. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. I love the technique of um, having clients talk directly to someone instead yeah. of about them. Like when I think of just those little shifts that can create an experience in session so it is like talking from and not about like being within the experience yeah if someone is expressing like strong feelings that they feel towards it could be a parent like a primary attachment figure it could be a partner it could be a friend it could be anyone that's kind of triggering different material And just asking the client, like, yeah, can you actually say what you just said to me, but like directly to that person? And sometimes it can actually be really intense. Like when when a client tries to do it, it's like, oh, my God, that brings up so much more emotion than just talking about it from a distance. Um, Sometimes I'll even have clients do it in their imagination instead of in real life if it feels too scary which I think imagination is a really great experiential tool. It's like, okay, that feels like too much to say out loud. Like, can you just like visualize, you know, this person and just like imagine yourself saying it to them. And even that can evoke a lot of like emotional
1: shifts. Totally. Cause that's like more experiential. You're right. So instead of having this like dissociative bird's eye view, just talking about it being in it very much so, just like you described, I Mm -hmm. think is so important, then you might uncover emotions you didn't even realize were there because you're so used to intellectualizing and kind of doing things from this distance. Mm
0: -hmm. Once you're
1: in it, you might realize, oh my gosh, I thought I loved myself completely and accepted myself completely. I had no idea there was this self-hatred and shame that Mm -hmm. I had been cut off from for Mm -hmm. so long. But I noticed when I was actually trying to talk to this person, which is just like, the empty chair or the pillow right. or whatever.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. That stuff is so powerful. And I feel like with, with OCD too, do you find that it has kind of like a dissociative element sometimes where it's like, it is a way of kind of trying to be like, I find that the the compulsions and obsessions are almost like a place that you can go dissociate to and really like live in that instead of living in your body and in the present.
1: I Yes, totally. OCD kind of hijacks the brain to think about one or a couple themes. A lot of people with OCD have a couple themes Mm
0: -hmm. or
1: subtypes. Um, But yeah, sometimes it's a really um, convenient way for the brain to redirect the trauma to something more, again, concrete and something more manageable than this abstract, really scary, destabilizing thing like loss of attachment or Mm -hmm. whatever it is. Yeah, yeah. I feel like
0: the takeaway from this is like the takeaway from pretty much every other interview I've done, which is that our brains are just so amazing. <laughs> you know, yeah. like our brains are so cool, so adaptive. And even these symptoms that are like so uncomfortable to live with when we really understand the neurobiology of what is happening in the brain and, and why it develops the way that it does that, that it has. It's like, oh my gosh, like our brains are so amazing at, like you said, protecting us and taking these like really complex traumas and trying to make them manageable.
1: I completely agree and I feel like a lot of people get stuck like okay like I know I'm having trauma responses where do I go from there and just like you said our brains are really amazing let's maybe try to have some compassion for all these things we tr- we did to try to survive and so yeah. bringing it back to IFS secure attachment between all the parts of self Mm -hmm. because sometimes we hate these parts. I hate my anxiety. I hate my depression. I hate that this part comes out and it's fawn or whatever it is, you know, where I'm shameful and, you know, I'm not standing up for myself. I hate that. And Mm -hmm. so sometimes I'll have people talk to that part, like, look, this helped you survive in some way. This is your brain desperately trying to cling on and get through this Let's let's talk to that part. What's coming up for you? And sometimes even self-hatred will come up. Ugh. Like, yeah. what does that part yeah. look like? Oh, it's me as a child. I hate them. Mm-hmm. That's great information. Even if yeah. you hate this exercise, we can stop, but that's really great information. And mm-hmm. then eventually I feel like the goal is to have such a secure attachment with all the parts that they they barely show up anymore. It's just the core true self. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That internal secure attachment is so, so huge. And especially for attachment trauma. Like we talk a lot about how one of the steps to becoming securely attached when you have an insecure attachment adaptation is to create an internal environment of security. It's like, yeah, we, we need those corrective experiences with other people. Like we need secure attachments to help us heal, but also we need like an internal environment of secure attachment. And that's how you build it right is to have these different parts of you actually like attuned to each other and hold compassion for each other and care for each other um and creating this kind of like internal integration and uh and then what I find from that working with clients is that eventually they're able to build up that kind of like inner adult like that like healthy stable inner adult that can tend to and nurture like the younger parts of us
1: exactly yeah that's ifs and also gestalt talks about like wise mind or healthy adults when we do like inner child stuff because a Mm. lot of the time we're like oh i love myself everything's fine i don't know why i'm having these problems and when we do inner child stuff we find parts of ourselves that maybe we rejected and maybe we exiled because they were you know treated unkindly you were bullied in school for having this interest so i exiled that part of myself and Mm -hmm. i go on through life you know, pretending it doesn't exist. And sometimes Mm -hmm. that part comes out and it's very destabilizing. And, and when we talk to them, we can meet them with some compassion as a healthy adult or using wise mind or whatever you want to call it. And yeah, develop that secure attachment. Like, I'm so sorry. Like I exiled you. I'm so sorry. I felt so much shame about you. This is actually Mm -hmm. a really cool interest. Mm -hmm. Let's come back like together and, you know, engage with that interest actually or do something that's like less shameful and so yeah. sometimes like I'll have clients like I, I'm i not going to tell about clients but like I love Sailor Moon growing up and so like I engage with that um, mm-hmm. kind of stuff in like my present life or like gymnastics something I did as a kid that then as I hit puberty I, I felt a lot of shame about and mm-hmm. so now doing it as an adult feels really cool and really empowering. Yeah
0: yeah, going back to some of those like inner child interests and hobbies and making room for play. I always talk with clients about the importance of play, especially because trauma recovery is intense and it's heavy. And Mm. one of the things that I do notice come up pretty often treating complex trauma is that people will come into therapy with a little bit of like a, I'm broken and I need to fix myself mindset. And it is this kind of like self-judging, self-shaming, like And and there can be this urgency too of like, okay, I need to heal myself. Like, let's go, let's go. Yeah. Like
1: (laughs) let's fix this shit.
0: And that can be really counterproductive because first of all, it brings this energy of like urgency and franticness into the therapy space. And then also it's like shame motivated because you're like, oh, I'm so messed up that I need to do all these things to fix myself. And so slowing down and making sure like okay we're gonna go process this trauma but when you're out of therapy sessions if you spend all your time like reading about trauma and doing your therapy exercises. And like, you are going to be so overwhelmed. You're going to shut down. You're going to feel terrible. Like we need time to play and rest. And I emphasize that so much. I'm like, go like watch funny movies, do an art project, get lots of sleep, be silly with your friends, go play with your dog, like whatever you need to be in that, in that playful energy.
1: I completely agree with everything you said, and that's so important. Um, because when there's this urgency and this obsession with fixing ourselves, we're really focusing on exiling the parts we're ashamed of. Yeah. And that's what we're desperately trying to do, which is more splitting of the internal self and yeah. more dissociation of the internal self or the parts of self. And that's what the, that's the opposite of what we really want to do. Yeah. Um, we want to look at those parts with compassion and love and not, something's really wrong with me. I need to fix it now. Therapist, go. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, like you said, this obsession with it, this urgency with it, which is, again, exiling those shame parts. And then, yeah, you're going to get so burnt out if all you're doing is, you know, listening to podcasts, reading books, going to therapy, journaling mm-hmm. every second of every day. like you're gonna yeah. burn out and yeah. that really tells me that there's something you are desperately trying to fix yeah yeah so, well i think yeah you should have fun and chill and like play and like live your life a, like you know and everything shouldn't revolve around mental health it's great information that wow mm-hmm. you desperately are putting all your energy into trying to fix yourself.
0: Yes. Yeah. Where's that
1: coming from?
0: Yeah. Sometimes I call it therapy perfectionism (laughs) where you come into therapy and you're like, I'm going to ace this shit. And I'm going to like, I'm going to do therapy so hard. And basically I'm going to like power through, I'm going to like bulldoze through, you know, therapy and you know, I'm trying to be totally healthy within three months. So like, go, 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 no time to waste. And, um, when I see clients in that state, yeah, definitely like, super empathize with where that energy is coming from and then really work together on like slowing it down. And, and kind of, I tell people like, I know it's annoying and clients don't want to hear it, but slower is faster with trauma therapy. Like taking mm-hmm. it slow is is how you get there. Um, and then working on that shame, you know, and I, I, I always tell people that, um, I cannot join a client in like shaming these parts of themselves. Like, I don't want to like reinforce that shame by being like, yeah, let's fix this part of you. This is really, you know, let's, let's get rid of that. So instead, sometimes we spend months in the beginning of therapy, just really building compassion for different parts. Um, and then once you really have the compassion and the empathy for these different parts and these different adaptations, then from a place of love and self-love, you can see like, okay, what can we shift? What can we update? Like, you know, which of these parts maybe is not oriented to the present moment and doesn't know that like you're an adult and that you have these different resources now. Um, but yeah, I feel like that is so important is to make sure that the foundation of treatment is from compassion and not self-shaming.
1: Yeah. You said like 20 really important points in there. And one that i'm picking out right now is attuning to the emotion not necessarily the content Mm -hmm. so the client can bring in all this content and and us attuning to the emotion and building that secure attachment and the keyword attunement um is really seeing where they are somatically emotionally regardless of all the stuff they're doing is wow you seem really scared wow this seems really urgent for you i hear that and i see you and i think that's super important if we're talking about like attachment therapy and just the relationship between client and therapist
0: Yes, yeah and then even attuning to that that frantic energy as a part right because that's a yeah. part too that's like a manager part that's a protector part that's a yeah. part that's like trying to fix everything and manage everything so we can feel okay and yeah. you know I'm big on like thanking the parts of us that we have previously disliked or shamed and um I, I find that thanking protective parts can really like, create a lot of relief. Um, And I think it can create a lot of relief for those protector parts that maybe feel scared that they're going to be like shut down or gotten rid of in therapy right so like let's say we're working with ocd and it's like wow but this this ocd behavior like this obsessive or compulsive part of me has adapted to keep me safe and now as we're working on it you know and trying to heal this part of me might even be like uh like are are you guys going to like try to get rid of me like are you guys going to try to um get rid of this role that i've played you know to keep myself safe and so instead like reassuring those parts of like no we like we see and we value everything that you've done to keep this individual safe. Um, And we're not ever going to like devalue or invalidate the role that you've played. Instead, what we're looking to do from the IFS lens is update, right? Like we're updating the job description (laughs) of these different parts. Um, And I always, I find that that language is really reassuring too. It's like, okay, we're just like updating. We're not getting rid of anything.
1: That beautifully stated absolutely and what you were saying kind of reminded me in erp um which is how we treat ocd um we do not reason with we do not engage in cognition with the ocd or Mm. even the ocd part because that actually does harm because that reinforces the ocd Yeah. so and that kind of counts as giving reassurance to clients um and like engaging in compulsions also kind of reaffirms the OCD in your brain. So if we're thinking about like these um, bottom down kind of more cognitive kind of therapies for OCD, that actually does harm. And we are taught, Mm -hmm. you know, in ERP that you're doing harm if you do that. Um, And I think we can kind of acknowledge what that means and also the importance of attuning with the emotions and recognizing and having compassion for the parts that are trying to keep us safe rather than um, trying to cognitively engage.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Um, well, I'm just going to ask a more broad question here as we, we kind of are coming towards the end of our time. Um, out of everything that you kind of focus on in your work, what, what do you just love about it? Like, what are you, what's just something you're passionate about or just something you love about this work that you want to share?
1: Yeah. Um, oh my gosh. Um... I think working with clients is such a privilege and a gift. Um, I'm so grateful for my job and my clients every single day that this is what I get to do, that I get to see people so deeply and connect with them so deeply and go through the therapy process with my clients on this level and build these very secure attachments with them. It is like the highlight of my life like in a lot of ways because it is just so meaningful and i appreciate my clients showing up and working so hard and being who they are truly um and i really appreciate that and um on a personal side i really love learning um and that's probably it's it's just great it's so fulfilling and um learning about this kind of stuff and doing this work but yeah i I love connecting with my clients. I have such a secure attachment with all my clients where we always joke, like we're for lifers, even if you end therapy, like, like you are in my heart forever. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's so, I I completely agree. It really is like such an amazing job to get to have, um, to build that trust with clients where they feel safe to go to such vulnerable places and do such like powerful work definitely the learning as well this is a field where you never run out of things to learn so yeah. <laughs> a life, lifetime of learning. yeah and robin are you accepting clients i know people hearing these episodes are going to want to know if they can work with you
1: um i'm actually studying for the licensing exam right now so um and i'm full um yeah um but i do i am starting a wait list right now for once the exam stuff is over and i can take on some new clients i do have a wait list um but yeah okay
0: awesome and then um I will include any links that you sent me like to your website or anything else in the podcast description so if anyone wants to touch base they can thank Thank you you so much for coming on today I really I learned a lot I really enjoyed it I, I know other people will too
1: yeah thanks so much for having me